0: So riddle me this, is this the only 80s horror film that has a scene featuring an SNM gay bar?
1: I don't know, you could probably argue that half of Hellraiser looks like it was set in an SM gay bar. But probably yes. I think it is.
0: Fuck me gently with the chainsaw.
1: When a movie is so bad, it's good.
0: Thanks, I bought it at Versace.
1: With quotes that launched a thousand memes. Keep
0: your legs together, this
1: isn't Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's gay? And when a little
0: Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy in a dress! I'm actually really looking forward to talking about, not the gay subtext because it's not at all subtext, it's overtly homosexual.
1: Well I think it's a subtext in that there is no way a not even a major, an independent movie studio like New Line would have approved a gay movie. It's subtextual in that I'm convinced that at least 90% of the people involved in making it had no idea what they were doing. It was weird and dark and subversive, ergo it was horror. Yeah, They just didn't realise that when you put all of those things side by side, you end up with a seriously gay movie.
0: Remind me, what's the writer's name, David something? Chaskin. Because he, for years, said it wasn't intentional that he hadn't set this up to be the gayest film ever. But then it was the documentary, Never Sleep Again, where he went, actually... Maybe it was a little bit.
1: And I'm convinced that an element of that is retconning. It's them going back and going, it's a little bit embarrassing to admit that we didn't spot how blatant this was because the writer is straight, the director was straight, you know, We know that Mark isn't straight. Yeah. But as a non-name lead in a low-budget horror sequel, it's not as though he would have had the influence to dictate the direction the movie was going in. He was cast in a role that required some sort of gender neutrality and he had enough of a sort of non-alpha male presence to suit that role. You know, the first time we see Mark Patton as Jesse, he's greasy and wimpy and sitting at the back of the bus all hunched over and being laughed at by the girls in retrospect is clearly a manifestation of him feeling like an outsider the new boy he's just moved to town he doesn't know anyone he has all of those standard teenage insecurities it's not explicitly homosexual he just hasn't found his place yet but when you first see it everything about what we know about horror franchise in the 80s suggests that one of those two girls on the school bus yeah. is going to be the lead character, or at least the first victim, and he's a weirdo at the back of the bus. We don't expect him to be the lead, and when we do see him, they go to great pains to make him more attractive and appealing than that kind of shivering, sweaty mess yeah. at the back of the bus.
0: How were you introduced to the franchise?
1: Forgive me as I take another lengthy trip down memory line. Okay,
0: a, a nice monologue. So, take us there.
1: In the 80s, everything was on video and some of the kids in school started to see movies that were 18 rated. I wasn't allowed at that point and I was afraid of horror movies. And right about the time that Elm Street 1 came out on video in the UK, some of the people at school had seen it and I wanted to see it but I was sort of afraid. And we went to Canada in the summer of 86 and my cousin was a huge horror freak and basically for the month that we were there she inducted me into horror movies and when she said that we could rent Nightmare on Elm Street I was excited because I could finally see this film that everyone at school had been talking about and she came home from the video store with not one but two movies and she said I've got Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and in the UK we didn't even realise that there was a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because In those days, movies were delayed by almost a year between coming out in the US and coming out in the UK. So I was like, I don't even care if I'm going to like this movie. I'm going to get to see it before anyone in the UK even knows there is one. So suddenly, I get three princess points.
0: I don't think we've recorded an episode where I haven't had an anecdote about my mother introducing me to a film. Your mum sounds amazing. She needs to be a
1: special guest on this podcast.
0: this, this is not going to be any different. So... 1992 it must have been august or september a nightmare on Elm street three was on one of the sky movie channels mm-hmm. and my mom let me stay up and watch it mm-hmm. and then me being this like seven eight year old who already was obsessed with horror completely fell in love with it and that was right around the time of like Freddy Krueger mania I mean like to take a quote from New Nightmare it was like people considered him to be Santa Claus Mm -hmm. fast forward a couple of months I've got Elm Street 1 Elm Street 2 on VHS and my mother dressed me up as Freddy Krueger for that Halloween
1: she sounds amazing
0: she is amazing like I love an 80s trailer and I love a voiceover on an 80s trailer and I think movies in 2017 are missing this however this is probably the worst I've ever encountered Someone is coming back to Elm
1: Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Get off of me. No. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? How? Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside
0: him. <laughs> fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. <laughs> Freddy
1: Krueger is back on Elm Street. Get out
0: of here, Lisa! Just fight him. him.
1: Watch out for him. Be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, part two. You are all my children now. Freddy's
0: Revenge. <laughs> so that that's a trailer. That's that that, a bag of crap. That tells you absolutely nothing about what the film's about. So you have 60 seconds to give us a synopsis. Um,
1: Jesse. Walsh is the literal new kid on the block who's moved into the house previously occupied by Nancy Thompson. He's haunted by dreams of some strange figure who is trying to seduce him into killing on his behalf whilst making friends and frenemies at the local high school. It's basically a possession story as Freddy tries to re-enter the real world, not just through nightmares, but through Jesse's body. And it culminates in a fiery conclusion in the old
0: boiler room where Freddy used to murder his kids. That was perfect and brings me on to the very first point I want to make about why I fucking hate this film. No, not hate, that's too strong a word. I love the franchise and because it's part of this franchise it'll have a a special place in my heart but it's definitely my least favourite instalment because of them changing the mythology and kind of how Freddy operates. The possession thing, I just didn't understand. It was too much of a a departure from how he operated in Elm Street 1.
1: So the difficult thing for a part two in a burgeoning franchise is the rules have only been established in so much as they support the story of the first instalment. And Wes Craven didn't invent a franchise, he told the story, and he tapped into something primal and unique and compelling that elevated the first Elm Street above a slasher movie. He created something that bended reality, it used surrealism, it used really primal fears, right down to the glove was supposed to represent the things that humanity was afraid of before weapons were invented, which was the claws of, you know, saber-toothed tigers. That's why Freddy has the claw. And all of that stuff was really compelling and raw. What they had to do in Nightmare on Street 2 was try to create a mythology so that they could make a franchise out of it. And it is the rules that they kind of fuck up that are problematic and the reason a lot of fans hate this It's their, it's most fans' least favourite instalment. It's actually probably my third
0: favourite. Really? Yeah. So mine in order of preference are 3, 1, New Nightmare, Dream Child...
1: How can you put Dream Master so low? Dream Master is amazing. Oh uh, no, I don't like Alice. I love Alice, Lisa Wilcox. I love you. <laughs> um, so, but on the on the on the rules thing, the problem is that the basic rules that Wes Craven created, that he set out in the first movie, are: if you die in your dreams, you die for real. Therefore, shit that happens in your dream can manifest in a tangible way. So Nancy brings the hat out of the dream. That makes sense. Likewise, she takes away Freddy's power by turning her back on him. Although the coda at the end of Elm Street 1 makes zero sense, and Wes Craven always fought it and hated it for precisely that reason, because it undoes the whole rule of the story. So we can't really blame Night on Elm Street 2 for sabotaging that, because the new line as a studio was willing to fuck around with the rules if it helped get an extra shock in there. But what happens is... Freddy bursts out of Jesse, it's not that it screws around with the rules, it's that it doesn't make sense. Freddy bursts out of Jesse, thereby discarding his body as like an old hat or a piece of flesh on the floor. But once Freddy disappears, which makes no sense because now he's in the real world, so he can't decide when to manifest and when to disappear, so that scene when he jumps through the French doors and disappears, and then pops out of the deck, just makes no sense. And suddenly Jesse is full-bodied again, after I... Freddy's burst out of him. That's that's my problem, is it, it's not creating any rule. I don't care if the rules are different, it's just there are no rules, it's just nonsense. Which,
0: having no rules is fine, and makes sense, if it's happening within the dream, but because this is happening in and reality, the yeah. like, the fuck is going on? Which is why I hate that pool scene, So much.
1: Yeah, I hate the pool scene for one reason, one reason only, and I apologise to whoever this person was, but there's one extra in that pool scene. The slightly overweight guy? No, it's the young girl with the slightly punky hair, and she's a really terrible actress, and there are just a few too many cutaways to her react, react, react. (laughs) And she's quite terrible and there's lots of scenes of her racing towards the camera and freaking out. And if I was the director, Jack Shoulder, who's actually a very good director, I would probably have cut away from her and maybe had less close-ups of sausages exploding because I don't believe that that makes for a truly (laughs) terrifying film experience.
0: Does that happen? Do sausages explode with too much heat on them? They are
1: called bangers for a reason. (laughs) Derek... Elm Street 2 sort of tried to create its own rule book and then thought, ah, oh, fuck it, let's make it up as we go along, and that's problematic. Do
0: you think that was because of the limited time that they had to get the script together? Because I read that the first 15 pages were written in three days. The rest of it was banged out within two weeks, and there was about three drafts done in that length of time. It
1: really doesn't feel like a film that had that many drafts. feels like a first draft. It's a... This thing needs to happen and then this thing happens and then this thing happens and then something else happens and let's try and end up somewhere. Because they couldn't repeat the gag of how Nancy destroyed Freddy in the first one. And of course, we're using the word destroyed in air quotes since when you establish a franchise, you can't really destroy a villain. And I actually thought that taking him back to the boiler room, which is his spiritual home, at least in the dream world, kind of made sense. I, I kind of like that and I like the fact that She, in the same way that Nancy asserts herself in the first one by turning her back on Freddy, Lisa in the second one implores Jesse to fight and burst his way out of Freddy. So you get that reversal, which, again, just supports this whole coming-out narrative, which has been belatedly transposed onto the film to say the whole thing is a coming-out metaphor. And when you look at the final scenes of the film in that way... There's some credence to it.
0: The other thing I really dislike is the very loose attempt at tying Elm Street 1 to Elm Street 2, which is Nancy's diary. It was just. It felt lazy. That um, it can be, could have been done. In fact, they didn't even need to have the diary. The very fact that it takes place in her house and her story is told by Grady when they're in the changing room, that's enough. It's.
1: I suppose. So.
0: And also the the terrible dialogue that came with the diary, but I'll come to that in a minute.
1: As he comes to me at night. (laughs) Although what's really interesting, so we're really getting into the post-rationalisation phase of our conversation. But what I love when you watch that scene back now, if it was coincidental that this whole gay narrative bubbled to the surface in Elm Street 2, it is fascinating to watch that scene with the reading of the diary where Jesse gets to read out the sensuous bits, yeah. It's not that Lisa reads out the bits that feel like the the diary entries of a you know sexually blossoming young woman. A lot of those come to when it turns sexual is Jesse who's reading it out, not Lisa. And I think that's interesting. But the the diary scene felt to me like because there were no other than Freddie. There were no continuing characters from part one to part two and they were taking a film that was a surprise hit and trying to make a franchise of it, they clearly needed to fill in more of the background from part one for the people who would go see part two without having seen the original.
0: Can I give you the full quote?
1: Sometimes when I'm lying here in bed, I can see Glenn in his window across the way, getting ready for bed. His body is slim and smooth, and I know I shouldn't watch him, But that part of me that wants him forces me to. That's when I weaken. That's when I want to go to him.
0: Can I see that? March
1: 15th. He comes to me at night, horrible, ugly, Mm. dirty, under the sheets with me, (laughs) tearing at my nightgown (laughs) with his steel claws. His name is Fred, and he keeps trying to take me to the boiler room. He wants to kill me. Well, who wouldn't be turned on by that? I know we're talking about the bits that don't work for us, but there's a nice bit of acting. I, for a franchise like this, there's a nice bit of acting when they read that. He's reading the line, and at the time when they read it, He's sort of mocking Nancy's sort of slightly flowery mills and Boone, sweet valley high way of writing about Glenn. And when it goes dark, I think he really sells that line where he realises that he's misjudged the tone. So when he's reading that out, he's playing along with the context that we've just established. And it's only when he gets to the steel claws that there's a sudden change in his tone. And I think he does a really good job with that. You know, this is not Shakespeare.
0: So there was a couple of things that apparently he struggled with in making the film. So the whole gay subtext thing is that the set dresser was also gay. (laughs) Set dresser, gay. Shocking.
1: He's the one who put the probe board game in the cupboard. Probe
0: board game in the cupboard, but also a sign on Jesse's door that says, or in Grady's door that says, no chicks allowed. Yeah. And there was also a scene that was changed during filming where Freddie was supposed to insert one of his claws into Jesse's mouth. Oh my god, I
1: wondered where that sentence was going.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mark Patton didn't feel comfortable with it, so that's why it got changed to him running his claw across his lips.
1: Right, which is much less sensual.
0: Well, still a
1: bit gay. Bit.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You want to talk about the effect?
1: Yeah, so the younger listeners of this podcast will not be able to conceive of a time before crystal clear freeze frame. But back in the day where we first watched this movie and it was on VHS and it was pan and scan and it was grainy and you had to pause a film and you had those vertical juddery lines down it. I remember even then particularly being disgusted by the quality of the effects of the parakeet attack. It is the worst cutaway. And I'm sure... So, a lot of the... So, the Elm Street films gradually became a bit of a three-ring effects circus. So, there were so many effects gags in the films that they had to get four or five different effects houses... And they'd each be allocated a gang to work on. So with Elm Street 4, it's like one would do the Chest of Souls, one would do the pizza, one would do the Freddy makeup, one would do the cockroach, and so on. Elm Street 2, they only had a couple of people. So Kevin Yeager did all the basic makeup effects for Freddy and redesigned Freddy to be much more of a witch. And Rick Lazzarini did a lot of the other effects, um, a lot of the creature effects. So the weird dogs with a human face that were basically a lift from. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And he did the sort of weird cat monster that eats the weird rat monster that was literally just, we're at the boiler room, we haven't had anything scary for about 15 minutes, we need a monster quick. And that's what he feels like, it's served no purpose. But I think he designed a much more terrifying parakeet. That's a weird sentence to even utter. But the way it's treated in the movie, the parakeet does its weird dive-bombing thing And then there's this cutaway to what looks like a rag on a string that just bursts into flames. And even my clueless 11-year-old self knew that that was a shitty effect. It was just horrible.
0: So we already touched on the, the Grady scene when Freddie comes out of Jesse's stomach in Grady's bedroom.
1: Most of which is a really amazing effect. Yeah,
0: I agree. Because what I love about it is when Freddie's coming out initially like pressing his face through Jesse's stomach, it felt like a, a throwback to the scene above Nancy's bed in Elm Street 1.
1: Yes, him pushing through a yeah, surface. which I
0: absolutely adored. All of that scene is great, but one of the things that sticks in my mind is that towards the end when Freddie is finally out of Jesse, Jesse Jesse literally falls apart. Then seven seconds later, Jesse is standing there. Yeah, Jesse, yeah. So,
1: and I suppose that is where they have license to go, well, you know, is it a dream? Is it real? But when you watch it, the physics of that don't work. So the glove bursts out of Jesse's hands. His skin peels off to reveal that his arm, Freddie's arms, are inside Jesse's arms. Yep. Yeah. But Freddy's head isn't inside Jesse's head, it's inside his abdomen. And Jesse slashes himself across the abdomen. Freddy's head births out through his midsection, but his arms are his arms. The top part of Jesse falls away like a theatrical cape. Which doesn't make sense because there's a whole other bit of body to go. It's not really something that makes any kind of sense, but it's a cool effect. What isn't a cool effect is that fucking eyeball at the back of Jesse's
0: throat. Do you know what? I absolutely love it. It's so terrible that it's absolutely brilliant. It's almost as bad as the really terrible editing in Nightmare 1 when the receiver on the telephone becomes Freddy's mouse. But no, I adore it. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is all
1: in that reverse Zoom. Because the gag is already there she has to sell it in her reaction it's the way the camera pulls back and reveals the thing that's on the end of it it's the fact that it makes that gross kissing noise that's sort of ridiculous
0: I really missed Heather Langenkamp in two
1: I think a lot of the fans did which is why no surprise she came back in parts three with her lovely little grey streak
0: so do you think one and well one and three are my definite top two and it's no surprise that Wes Craven directed both of them no he didn't Oh, did he write both of them? He
1: co-wrote a draft for part three, but his draft was thrown out and replaced by a draft by Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell. Frank Darabont, writer of Shawshank Redemption.
0: But his his presence on that film is felt, whereas in two, did he not have a producer credit on it? He had.
1: I think he had a producer credit because at the time he was going through um, legal wrangling with New Line about profit participation on would have been a one-off movie that suddenly... So when he wanted to make the first one, he couldn't find a studio to stump up the, whatever it was, one or two million dollars to make the movie. When it was an unexpected hit, it suddenly became something bigger, and he ended up in a kind of legal struggle with New Line for a number of years over uh, profit participation. So I think as a way of trying to smooth over that, they gave him a producer credit on part two, although he didn't really have anything to do with it. And part three, they originally commissioned him to write the screenplay, which he did with another writer called Bruce Wagner. But their draft was very similar to what ended up in Dream Warriors, but it was much too expensive. I mean, there was all this shape-shifting that happened. So if you remember the wizard character, the character who is obsessed with Will, who's obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons, there's a really amazing sequence where Will and Freddy keep shape-shifting. And it's the sort of thing that now, with CGI, they'd have been able to do probably quite cost-effectively. In 1987, that wasn't a thing. So they replaced it, and Chuck Russell, who directed Part 3, co-wrote a new draft with Frank Darabont, um, who at the time was just a horror writer before he went on to fame with Shawshank and Green Mile. And they took the basic premise of Wes Craven's draft and cheapened it down. They kept a lot of what was in it. Um, but the actually, the novelisation of the first three movies, the third novelisation, is based on Wes Craven's screenplay rather than the one that got filmed. So if you want to know what Wes Craven's vision was for it, it's worth picking. You can get that novel on... Amazing. Um, it's, and it's really good. I mean, it's really compelling. And there are, there are little subtle differences like um, the Jennifer Rubin character, who's the one who gets the needles in her. That was an invention by Chuck Russell and uh, quite cool because you get that whole, you know, let's get high scene. Whereas in Wes Craven's version, she actually sees her grandmother in a rocking chair and she goes to give her a hug, and the grandmother turns into Freddie and she slashes her. So there are there are some quite fundamental differences, but the overall plot is the same. It's same Western Hills as the Hypnoshill and yeah. all that stuff. So sorry, we've sort of digressed away from this too, but I love this franchise so much.
0: And so do why? And one of the reasons I love it so much is because of the kills. Um, and in in one three, four, five, and onwards, the dream sequences are fucking brilliant. And I love how in each one it ties into the legitimate fear of that person who's about to die, and that's essentially how he's going to murder them. And that's entirely missing from A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So in terms of kills, only one person from the main cast meets their demise by Freddy.
1: Yeah. It's not all fears, though. Sometimes it's just their weaknesses. And in part five, which a lot of people hate, part five is all based around... um, Well, for Greta, it's about the pressures of her parents. For Mark, it's actually his comic, which is his passion. So I I just think the franchise as a whole tried to make the people in it characters rather than um, cannon fodder. Like, Friday the 13th never really spent a lot of time making people characters they were literally like you'd have characters who turned up to take a shit in the woods and then get killed that yeah. was their whole role was we haven't killed anyone for five minutes and the the up street films just had a slightly different view and that's actually why i was always a fan of part four because part four was the one that really embodied the fear narrative the idea of trying to activate you know so you had Toy Kirk, she was asthmatic, so he sucks the life out of her. Um, you had Debbie was afraid of cockroaches, so she f- she actually becomes a cockroach. I-, I think that was made much more explicit in part four. I think part two is a strangely bloodless and murder-free slasher movie. Yeah. Like you say, only Grady dies at the hands of Freddy. And the but, gym teacher. And the gym, but, but he's not really it, a character in it good old Marshall Bell, who went on to play KwaTu in Total Recall. whip in who? mind. So, no, yes, that's not him. Yes, Marshall Bell. So the coach in... I'm sure I'm right about that. The coach in Elm Street 2 goes on to be Kuatu, the leader of the Rebels in Total Recall, who has the little baby growing out of his abdomen. So he and Mark Patton have got something in common. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, but that... I mean, that that whole scene was weird because they were killing a character that you didn't care about. He was sort of another villain. There's a weird thing that they do in part two as well with Jesse's younger sister, where he has the dream where he goes into a room and she's jumping rope and she's got that weird, gauzy glow about her that makes her look like one of the Greek chorus girls from the first one who sings the One, Two Friends, yeah. Coming For You song.
0: What is completely absent from the film.
1: Yes. Although, what isn't absent from the film is at least this one mentions Elm Street, because Nightmare Elm Street never mentions the name of the street. It's literally just a film title. Whereas when Jesse talks to Grady for the first time in the locker room, he says, your folks just bought that place over on Elm Street. So we finally established that it's not a generic title,
0: it is actually the name of the street that they live on. Comparing it to other franchises, though, because you've kind of touched on that a little bit. If we start from... Halloween. So if we go, it goes Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Where do you think, in terms of quality, Elm Street sits?
1: I think it's the highest. I think it's the one, if you to compare them, and I have a lot of love for all, all of them. So it's interesting to note that Elm Street was the franchise that launched the careers of...
0: Patricia Arquette. Okay, well,
1: yeah. I'm thinking directorially. Oh. Um, it launched um, the careers of Chuck Russell, who went on to make Eraser with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he went really big. He made The Mask with Jim Carrey. Part 4 launched Rennie Harlan, who'd only made Prison at that point, and he went on to make Die Hard 2 and Long Kiss Goodnight Cutthroat Island. Probably best not to mention that one. But he became a big A-list director. Uh, Part 5 launched the career of... Oh, no, now I've forgotten his name. The Australian director, who went on to make The Ghost in the Darkness. He created the signature split-screen visual look for the TV show 24. It put a lot of... And Rachel Talalay, even, who made Part 6, who went on to make Tank Girl, and let's stop there. But it put these... Well, but then also the scriptors, Frank Darabont and um, a number of other writers. You've got really quality filmmakers who were put on the map by the franchise, plus then the actors, Johnny Depp, who was Johnny Depp's breakthrough role in The First Night on Elm Street. You've got... Um, Lawrence, Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. Patricia Fishburne. All of whom had done other stuff, but it was like a a signature breakthrough role for them. Elisa Zane was a quality actor in part six. Yaffa Kotto was a great actor. There was just a mark of quality and a desire to do something different each time. Each film had a different aesthetic. Each film really tried to push the boundaries of what could be done visually on a four million dollar budget. Whereas if you look at the Halloweens, they all tried to be cookie cutter versions of the same movie.
0: Until Halloween
1: 6. Stop it, we're not even talking about that.
0: I want to talk about the gay bit for a little bit. Specifically... Do you all of it? No, I mean the, the, the bits that you look at and you actually just can't help but see a pink flashing neon gay sign in your mind. Yeah. Starting with the football coach. And, not the football coach, the gym coach. Running into him in a gay leather S&M bar.
1: But the gayness of the coach starts before that. It starts way before that. When they're out on the baseball field and Grady pulls Jesse's pants down. And to rel-
0: the jockstrap into so, him.
1: So can I say, so I was so young when I saw this film, I did not know what a jockstrap was and I couldn't understand why Jesse appeared to be at once both wearing underwear and not wearing underwear. I did not know what that was. <laughs> I was like, I, I can't quite conceive of what I'm looking at. Is is he wearing underwear that's see-through? Why, why is that there? I didn't get it.
0: Well, we don't really have jockstraps in the UK. I mean, I only well, know... Well, we do now. Not in high school. <laughs> but no, I mean, in sport, yes. people don't use them here. I mean, No, you, you, had, a,
1: you had a cup if you played yeah. cricket, but that was it.
0: Outside of America, the only thing that a jockstrap is used for is gay sex. Nothing else. There you go. And I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I'm really okay with that. But no, the with the, the S&M bar scene, I don't understand how, and this is a good and a bad, I don't understand how the gym teacher can run into a student in a gay s and bar in America at that time and think that he has one up on the student, when in actual fact, I'm sorry, if a student sees a gay teacher in America in an s and bar that student has one up on that teacher for the rest of his academic career.
1: That's basic, the boy is also 17, so he's underage anyway, so everyone's in a whole heap of shit trouble. But also, they remember they'd already established that Grady says to Jesse, he likes young pretty boys like you. And what's interesting is Grady then is using language like young pretty boy to talk about a class colleague, which is weird. That's just... I don't believe that that is natural dialogue that would fall out of a heterosexual man's mouth.
0: Not at 17.
1: But then that they've already identified the coach as some sort of gay sexual predator. And then the idea that Jesse ends up in the gay bar, which feels very... When you're watching at the time... Watching it as a kid, I didn't even get it was a gay bar. I just thought it was a weird, dark, underground bar. I didn't even notice that there were men kissing, which at the time would have been quite confrontational in a mainstream slasher sequel. You just didn't get that stuff. But I do agree with you that the idea that... when he slaps his, you know, leather-bangled wrist over Ah. Jesse's... to prevent him from drinking the beer... and suddenly he takes him back to the gym and forces him to run around... Jesse would be like... I'm going to tell them that you touched me. And that that would would be the end of his career. (laughs) Yes, it's just weird that he makes Jesse run around a deserted gym, and then he says, hit the shower, and Jesse does. It's There's something there where Jesse's... Even even though you're not sure whether it's a dream or reality, Jesse's going along with it.
0: Up until the actual kill, it's the one scene where you kind of question, is it a dream, is it not a dream, that I actually always go with, this is actually a dream. The kill also doesn't make a lot of sense, because the teacher is in the shower, gets... Tied up or no?
1: No, no. We have to start before that. Oh no! We need to go to the ass. We have to do... no no even before that. We have to basically do the Amber from Clueless joke, where she goes. My doctor tells me I shouldn't engage in any activity where balls fly <laughs> in my face. <laughs> because basically, oh, there's no. one whole scene where the coach is just assaulted by balls. balls. And then you get that weird thing where you see the tennis racket strings popping, which I don't know if that's supposed to be scary or it's just, why is that there? And then the skipping ropes tie around his wrists. And since they've established that he's kind of into S&M, him being tied up by his wrists isn't necessarily scary. It's scary because they're being dragged by an invisible assailant, but he's kind of... I'm being tied up, this is fun. And then dragged into the shower. And that's when you get the weird, his clothes are ripped off. Which, since he's about to be slashed with a knife, does he need to be naked? There's a a weird sort of horseplay thing that happens.
0: But this is why one of the biggest scenes that people love or hate because of its overt homosexuality. I love it. I think it's fucking brilliant. But uh, but I'm, I'm the audience.
1: So there's an interesting argument. So, again, anyone who's interested in finding out more about the the gay subtext in Nightmare Elm Street 2 should really read a book by Harry Benshoff called Monsters in the Closet. It's a really incredible book that does, for horror movies, what Vito Russo's Celluloid Closet did for mainstream Hollywood movies. And there's a whole section in there dedicated to Elm Street 2. One of the things he talks about in there is that one of the first explicit manifestations of a homosexual theme in the film is the idea that in moments of extreme gay panic, some closeted gay men have been known to lash out or violently attack the person who, I'm using air quotes here, seduced them. They have a moment of remorse or guilt post-coital where they lash out and sometimes people ended up, you know, stabbing or slashing someone. When you look at Now on Street 2 in that context, that's what that feels like. like. There's been a moment of intimacy between Jesse and his coach and Jesse's natural reaction then is to eliminate the evidence, which is why the coach gets slashed and left for dead.
0: What do you think of the relationship of Jesse and Grady? Isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They start off with a fight with the revealing of the jockstrap.
1: Which is not an overly masculine fight.
0: It's not. Doing press-ups together and then becoming friends in the changing room. Shirtless. Shirtless, which might as well be any given cruising area in any metropolitan city. And it gets to the point where when Jesse is finally about to pop his cherry with Lisa, freaks out because of the Freddy time incident and where That's does he great. run to? He runs to Grady.
1: So before we do that, let's acknowledge the tongue incident because what you've got there is, let's assume that Jesse is gay. He's trying to have a sexual encounter with his, I'm doing air quotes again, girlfriend, on the floor and a part of his body becomes pronounced and voluminous and he's horrified by it and pushes it back in because he doesn't like that manifestation of his sexual self. His tongue is an analogy for his penis, and it's it's big and it's angry and it's horrifying, and he pushes it back in and he runs away because he's afraid. So that's point one. Point two is that he clambers through Grady's window, and Grady says quite explicitly to him, you've got this hot girl waiting for you on the cabana floor, and you want to sleep with me. Not, you want to bunk down in my bedroom, not, you want to spend the night here, you want to sleep with me. They weren't trying too hard to hide the subtext, if that's what the game was. And the fact that Grady doesn't kick him out, he lets him sleep there, is interesting, because there's no gay panic. Grady does also end up penetrated against the door.
0: Do you like that they tried something different?
1: Yes, I love it. I love that. And so, going back to 11-year-old me watching these two movies in a back-to-back Elm street in my cousin's den, wrapped in a, you know, patchwork blanket and eating cheese-flavoured popcorn, I was just in hog heaven watching these two movies. But I remember, even at that young age, Elm Street 1 was like, this is about as scary as a horror movie can get. The whole film, I was on the edge of my seat. Elm Street 2 intrigued me and entertained me I didn't ever really feel like I was watching something scary from the, you know, ridiculous miniature work with the bus on the sort of toppling tower at the start through to all of those little throwaway gags that we've mentioned, like the bird and the cat and the rat and the dog. None of those were scary. They were just, guys, we just need to do some stuff to get people things to look at. You know, you get the one amazing effect sequence where Freddy comes out of Jesse and the rest of it is just kind of silly, you know, excuse me, you get the iconic scene of Freddy in front of the broken barbecue, so you got flames in the sky and in silhouette he raises his arms and he goes, you're all my children now, that's a great scene, although when you watch it in high def you realise that they didn't even attempt to dub it to his, his lips, it's literally like a voiceover.
0: There is, um, there's a great podcast, Beyond the Box Set, and every episode they attempt to look at an existing film and they pitch an idea for the sequel. Obviously we've got a massive, massive amount of films in the Nightmare on Elm Street universe, including a remake. I have my opinions on the remake, but I don't hate it.
1: Oh, I hate it.
0: If they made a sequel to the remake in 2010... Do you think they would have picked up the Nightmare on Elm Street story from where the original sequel is or do you think they would have skipped to somewhere around the Dream Warriors, Dream Master place?
1: Given how little the people who made the remake seemed to respect the original franchise, I imagine they would almost do a sequel that was like a reboot again or they'd do it the way the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, remake handled it, which was to do a prequel. So we'd get Freddy's bio as a sequel. I don't think anyone in their right mind would touch the plot of Nightmare on Wall Street 2 because I don't think enough people love it to warrant it being a story worth retelling. I think there is something fascinating in there that it's a horror movie that, whether by intent and design or accident, tells a fairly interesting coming out story. I don't think that's something mainstream horror audiences are crying out for. I think what's interesting for me is if you look like look at a movie like It Follows, which to me is the closest thing we ever got to an unofficial Mountain remake, there's no Freddy Krueger, there's no slashing, there's none of that, but in terms of the aesthetic, the kind of dreamlike atmosphere, the lead female character being haunted by her sexual awakening and... That dream reality, the gossip, the gossamer line that separates the two, everything about It Follows felt like a calling card for someone who should have been given the On Street remake. Um, and because there was a really interesting sexual theme that ran through It Follows, I'd love to see those guys, the people who made that, given a chance to, you know, maybe tell a story from a more gay perspective, which wouldn't be a remake of Elm Street 2, but it might be a male sexuality version of It Follows. Does that make sense? So no one's ever going to go near Elm Street 2 because there's nothing in it that warrants a remake, except that I think in the same way that Ginger Snaps took a well-told werewolf tale. You know, the werewolf has always represented the the inner turmoil, the alternate self it's the Jekyll and Hyde narrative you know, the beast within Ginger snapped, took it and made it a kind of feminist narrative about burgeoning female sexuality I think someone could do something interesting with a gay story that isn't let's make a story about a bunch of shirtless jocks who spend a lot of time having showers and teasing each other I think somebody can find something that manifest that horror the fear of rejection the 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 fear of allowing something within to come out which is you know time and time again in the dialogue of no Street 2 it couldn't be more explicit someone's inside of me and he's trying to come out it, it's right there you know Freddie is literally an old man trying to seduce a young man you've got the body I've got the brains it's all over that movie. And I'd love to see someone daring to do that intentionally rather than accidentally. But no one will ever go, yeah, the world's crying out for the further adventures of Jesse and Lisa.
0: The one thing that we actually haven't spoken about, I mean, we haven't criticised or spoken about its brilliance, is actually Robert England.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he's always amazing. I mean, he is the defining, or just not defining, he's the definitive horror character of, you know, of the big iconic ones, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, to me they're the big slasher three, you could argue there's Pinhead and Chucky as well, but Freddy Krueger was the only one who actually gave a personality to the killer, and I think Nightmare on Elm Street 2 probably made the mistake of putting Freddy too much in the limelight and giving him too much dialogue. So by part three, Freddy was sort of, a rather than a villain, he was an anti-hero, and by part four, you know, Renny Harlan spoke quite openly in all his interviews as he was making the movie that Freddy Krueger was a James Bond for our time, and by that point you could buy board games with Freddy Krueger, you could buy children's dolls where you could dress them up as Freddy Krueger. It's like, we're so far beyond this being a terrifying child molester murderer, he's just a pop culture icon now but I I do think Robert Englund is great in Normal Street 2 and Robert Englund when you listen to him interviewed he's clearly smart enough and has that kind of intellectual appreciation for subtext and thematics he may not have noticed at the time how explicit the gay it was he certainly gets a kick out of it now in retrospect looking back at the movie he's like yeah it's clearly there he just maybe wasn't aware of it at the time.
0: Let's pretend for a minute the 2010 remake doesn't exist. Do you I think love
1: that world?
0: Do you think there's either an appetite for another Nightmare on Elm Street film or a sequel to Freddy vs. Jason? Personally, I want both.
1: Yes to the first, no to the latter. I think Freddy vs. Jason is not a story; it's a device to satiate a 18-year wait for a thing that people had been promised so conversations around freddy versus jason started in 1986 uh, and it took them about 18 years to work out the legalities so once you'd finally got sean cunningham and new line and new line owned both properties and they'd set it up at the end of jason goes to hell with freddy's glove coming out and taking the mask it felt like an eventuality rather than a story that needed to be told so there is no requirement for a sequel I do think there will always be a hunger for another night on Street, but as I said with that reference, it follows. If they do it, they need to understand why people love it, and to me, the remake just got everything wrong.
0: Where do you think a, another sequel could pick up? New new cast, new story, same Freddy?
1: Well, when you say same Freddy, do you mean Jackie L. Haley again? No,
0: I mean Robert England.
1: I think Robert England will always be Freddy to people, and... Given how he's buried in prosthetics, I don't really believe his age matters.
0: What about the personality? Do you think that that personality of Freddy being a comedian with ridiculous one-liners would hold up with an audience in 2017?
1: No, I think if they did it now, they'd be forced to go back and make him a figure of fear again. Which I do think the remake tried to do, but I think he was it was a terrible design, and they... The, the mistake that the, that the remake made for me was by trying to make the whole plot a did-they-or-didn't-they story about the children and their abuse. So the children were abused, and then it turned out the children had made up the abuse story, so Freddie was wrongly accused... In which case you sort of think well maybe his vengeance is appropriate because the kids were little shits who made up an abuse story and then you get a reveal that actually no they didn't make it up he was abused. which just serves to confuse well who am i supposed to give a shit about here because at this point i just think everyone's awful freddy needs to be a figure of fear in the original it was quite simple he was a figure of fear he got away with it the parents executed their own sort of martial law. They killed Freddy, and Freddy decided that it was a sins of the parents' narrative, as far as he was concerned, and he was going to come back and make them pay for it. So whether or not you agree with the vigilante justice that they exerted, it's a fairly understandable story. The remake just messed all of it up, and it ended up being trying to solve a mystery that, Nobody cared about. Freddy's a bad guy. He's killing people. We don't need to go back into the, well, was it justified or not? Because that's a really toxic, victim-blaming story. And I hate it. I liked
0: the, the remake... I didn't love the remake, but it it's got it's got its place. But for me, if it was to be done again, what I would actually would have loved was to have something almost along the lines of Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, where which is
1: the oh my god, you and I are
0: gonna have such a falling out. No, we won't. It's fine. Calm down, Brenda. You know, episode one, the pilot of the Nightmare on Elm Street TV series. Yes, when, when Mr.
1: Nice Guy, directed by Toby Hooper. Oh,
0: look at you. Where they did his origin story, I would have liked to have seen an extended look at Freddy's origin, followed by.
1: But we got that in part six when Lisa Zane started having the flashbacks. We got Freddy's a kid, and Freddy's a teenager, and Freddy's a hamster smasher. And then Freddy's a child abductor, and then Freddy's a married husband who weirdly lived at 1428 Elm Street, which just made no sense whatsoever. But
0: Freddy's dead doesn't make sense anyway. No, it's complete it's... garbage. That, that ranks on my absolute lowest Oh of yes, I'm um, glad
1: we agree on that. But
0: well, we don't really agree on two, do we? No, I rate it much higher. Well, I
1: rate it much higher because I enjoy watching it. I suppose if it was about the merits of the movie, I would be one, seven, four, three,
0: two, five, six... When you go back to these films, do you watch them all or do you just watch singular films? Because when I go back, I start at one and work my way through.
1: I think with the, the great thing about slasher films and their franchises is that since they rarely tell a linear narrative, you can watch them out of sequence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I, I like to sit down on a Sunday afternoon with a hangover and put on Nightmare One and work my way through.
1: When I was a student, I used to work my way through it in chronological order. And I like that. But, you know... Um, There are parts of three that really drag
0: for me. There are parts of five that are really slow. Wait, wait, rewind. Parts of three that drag? Yes. No. Yes. Name one scene that drags too long.
1: Oh, the extensive therapy scenes and, uh, you know, some of the character establishing bits and the... Nancy going to meet with Kirsten's mum and... Kristen's mum, sorry. The reason I call her Kirsten sometimes, in the, in the novelisation I mentioned earlier, yeah. they keep switching between Kristen and Kirsten and it's really confusing.
0: So, I think the pacing in three is the film... Oh no, one in three, the pacing in those two films gets it absolutely perfectly.
1: I think they're fine, but you need to understand that of these films, I've watched them all so many times. There was a time when I had a VHS collection that was basically... Elm Street's 1 to 5, and three of the movies.
0: Why is it that we have such a a similar past? Because when I first moved to Scotland, the only box set I brought with me was the Nightmare on Elm Street DVDs. So the only thing I could watch for an extended period of time when I was living below the poverty line working in clubs was A Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: And when I went off to university, I basically took Elm Street's 1 to 5, Terminator 2, Tremors, Robocop... And the Alien series. Well, Alien 1 and Aliens. That was it. And the Elm Streets were the easiest ones to watch. So they just went on again and again and again and again. So I know those films inside and out. Right, let's call it an evening. Thank you, this was most fun. It I'm was. sorry we wandered off the topic and talked about the whole franchise, but I'm not sorry.
0: No, I'm not sorry either. I could probably talk about the franchise as a whole for... A season of a podcast
1: And if people like it Maybe we'll do just that
0: So anyway Calling it a day Where can people find you online To torment you after we Publish this
1: At G-Dimlo, G-D-I-M-E-L-O-W
0: You really need something That's easier to say
1: That's my name What am I going to do? It's my name
0: <laughs> And I'm at At So Bad It's Gay Cut me gently with the chainsaw. When a movie is so bad, it's good. Thanks, I bought it at Versace. With quotes that
1: launched a thousand memes. Keep your legs together,
0: this isn't
1: Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's gay. And when a tired little Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy. in a dress. <sighs> Jesus Christ, you scared the shit out of me, man. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what the fuck you doing in my room? I need you to let me stay here tonight. Are you out of your mind? Something is trying to get
0: inside my body, and you want to sleep with me.